You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Thunder Quack podcast, this special edition, which I'm deciding to call Amanda Reads Prose to make use of her theater degree and to get through these uncertain times. It's got a beautiful ring to it. Uh, But anyways, I'm your host, Amanda Conkin, and I am going to read. Uh, So here is uh, a little bit of something that we've never really done before on the podcast. Uh, But there's lots of this going around and uh, being a huge science fiction nerd and also a big novel junkie, I uh, am going to read Frankenstein. It's very exciting. It's one of the first science fiction novels, um, as we sort of call them today. Uh, so I and people have around me have been saying, "Why haven't you read this? It's ridiculous. You really need to. It's beautiful and lovely." So I'm gonna give it a shot. So here, here you go. Here's my recording from uh, earlier today. Uh, I hope you enjoy. So th- obviously, this isn't all of the episodes, uh, all of the book, um, but this is just uh, gonna be the preface and uh, the first four letters uh, before we get into chapter one. Uh, take a listen. See if you're interested. Uh, and. Uh, uh, We'll see you on the other side. This is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Uh, This is the 1818 version, second edition. One of the queens of uh, science fiction literature here. I'll read the preface because I would like to know what the preface says. The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the psychological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination. Yet, in assuming it as the basis of a work of fantasy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of specters or enchantment. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops, and, however impossible, as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. I have thus endeavored to persevere the truth of the elementary principles of human nature, while I have not scrupled to innovate upon their combinations. The Iliad, the tragic poetry of Greece, Shakespeare in The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream, and most especially Milton in Paradise Lost, conform to this rule. And the most humble novelist, who seeks to confer or receive amusement from his labors, may without presumption apply to prose fiction a license, or rather a rule, from the adoption of which so many exquisite combinations of human feeling have resulted in the highest specimens of poetry. The circumstance on which my story rests was suggested in casual conversation. It was commenced partly as a source of amusement, and partly as an expedient for exercising any untried resources of mind. Other motives were mingled with these as the work proceeded. 
I am by no means indifferent to the manner in which whatever mortal tendencies exist in the sentiments or characters it contains shall affect the reader. Yet my chief concern in this respect has been limited to the avoiding the unnerving effects of the novels of the present day and to the exhibition of the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. The opinions which naturally spring from the character and situation of the hero are by no means to be conceived as existing always in my own conviction, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any psychological doctrine of whatever kind. It is a subject also of additional interest to the author that this story was begun in the majestic region where the scene is principally laid, and in society which cannot cease to be regretted. I passed the summer of 1816 in the environs of Gen Geneva. The season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we're, we crowded around a blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts, which happened to fall into our hands. These tales excited us a playful desire of imitation. Two other friends, a tale from the pen of one of whom would be far more acceptable to the public than anything I can ever hope to produce, and myself agreed to write each a story founded on some supernatural occurrence. The weather, however, suddenly became serene, and my two friends left me on a journey among the Alps, and lost in the magnificent scenes which they present, all memory of their ghostly visions. The following tale is the only one which has been completed. Okay, so having never read Frankenstein before and only heard of it, I have to say, after reading that preface and just the language that Mary Shelley is using and the beauty of, of her recalling how the story even came to be is brilliant. So I haven't even gotten to chapter one yet. I've read uh, the preface and then the first four letters of the of the novel and I'm very excited and I think that this might be something that I want to continue to do. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed listening to the preface of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, and uh, know what you're in store for as we continue on this journey of, uh, of the novel. So uh, let's, let's get into the next sections. Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Letter 1. To Miss Seville, England. St. Petersburg. December 11th, 1700-1. As Robinson shows, the year is 1796. Walton's story begins at about the date of Shelley's conception and ends 13 days after her birth, two days after her mother's death. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking. I am already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. 
There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad dusk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in preceding navigators. Their snow and frost are banished, and sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hereto discovered in the habitable globe. Its productions and features may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes. What may not be expected in a country of eternal light? I may there discover the wondrous power which attracts the needle, and may regulate a thousand celestial observations that require only this voyage to render their seeming eccentricities consistent forever. I shall state satiate my ardent curiosity with the sight of a part of the world never before visited and may treed oh my god and may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man this is beautiful prose and i am butchering it so i apologize there are my enticements and they are sufficient to conquer all fear of danger or death and to induce me to commence this laborious voyage with the joy a child feels when he embarks in a little boat with his holiday mates on an expedition of discovery up his native river. But supposing all these conjectures to be false, you cannot contest the inestimable belief which I shall confer on all mankind to the last generation by discovering a passage near the pole to those countries, to reach which at present so many months are requisite, or by ascertaining the secret of the magnet, which, if at all possible, can only be effected by an undertaking such as mine. These reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter, and I feel my heart glow with an enthusiasm which elevates me to heaven, for nothing contributes so much to tranquilize my mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye. This expedition has been my favorite dream of my early years." I have read with ardor the accounts of the various voyages which have been made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean through the seas which surround the pole. You may remember that a history of all the voyages made for purposes of discovery composed the whole of our good uncle Thomas's library. My education was neglected, yet I was passionately fond of reading. These volumes were my study day and night, and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt as a child on learning that my father's dying injunction had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark on a seafaring life. These visions faded when I perused for the first time those poets who effusions entranced my soul and lifted it to heaven. I also became a poet, and for one year lived in a paradise of my own creation. I imagined that I also might obtain a niche in the temple where the names of Homer and Shakespeare are consecrated. You are well acquainted with my failure, and how heavily I bore the disappointment. But just at that time, I inherited the fortune of my cousin, and my thoughts were turned into the channel of their earlier bent. Six years have passed since I resolved to my present undertaking. I can, even now, remember the hour from which I dedicated myself to this great enterprise. I commenced by inuring my body to hardship. I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea. I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, and want of sleep. 
I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventurer might derive the greatest practical advantage. Twice, I actually hired myself as an undermate in the Greenland whaler and acquitted myself to admiration. I must own I felt a little proud when my captain offered the second dignity in the vessel and entreated me to remain with the greatest earnestness, so valuable did he consider my services. And now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Oh, that some encouraging voice would answer in the affirmative. My courage and my resolution is firm, but my hopes fluctuate and my spirits are often depressed. I am about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all my fortitude. I am required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own when theirs are failing. This is the most favorable period for traveling in Russia. They fly quickly over the snow in their sledges. The motion is pleasant and, in my opinion, far more agreeable than that of an English stagecoach. The cold is not excessive if you are wrapped in furs, a dress which I have already adopted. For there is a great difference between walking the deck and remaining seated motionless for hours when no exercise prevents the blood from actually freezing in your veins. I have no ambition to lose my life on the post road between St. Petersburg and Archangel. I shall depart for the latter town in a fortnight or three weeks, and my intention is to hire a ship there which can easily be done by paying for the insurance of the owner and to engage as many sailors as I think necessary among those who are accustomed to the whale fishing. I do not intend to sail until the month of June, and when shall I return? Ah, dear sister, how can I answer this question? If I succeed, many, many months, perhaps years, will pass before you and I may meet. If I fail, you will see me again soon, or never. Farewell, my dear, excellent Margaret. Heaven shower down blessings on you, and save me, that I may again and again testify my gratitude for all your loving kindness. Your affectionate brother, R. Walton. Letter 2. To Miss Saville, England. Archangel, 28th of March, 17 footnote, i.e. 1797. Wollstonecraft and Godwin were married on the 29th of March. How slowly the time passes here, encompassed as I am by frost and snow, yet a second step is taken towards my enterprise. I have hired a vessel and am occupied in collecting my sailors. Those whom I have already engaged appear to be men on whom I can depend, and are certainly possessed of dauntless courage. But I have one want which I have never yet been able to satisfy, and the absence of the object of which I now feel as a most severe evil. I have no friend. Margaret, when I am glowing with the enthusiasm of success, there will be none to participate in my joy. If I am assailed by disappointment, no one will endeavor to sustain me in dejection. I shall commit my thoughts to paper, it is true, but that is a poor medium for the communication of feeling. I desire the company of a man who could sympathize with me, whose eyes could reply to mine. You may deem me romantic, my dear sister, but I bitterly feel the want of a friend. I have no one near me gentle yet courageous, possessed of a cultivated as well as a capacious mind, who tastes as, whose tastes are like my own to approve or amend my plans. How would such a friend repair the, the, repair the faults of your poor brother, 
I am too ardent in execution and too impatient of difficulties. But it is still greater evil to me that I am self-educated. For the first 14 years of my life, I ran wild on a common and read nothing but our Uncle Thomas's books of voyages. At that age, I became acquainted with the celebrated poets of our country, our own country, but I was, it was only when it had ceased to be in my power to derive its most important benefits from such a conviction that I perceived the necessity of becoming acquainted with more languages than that of my native country. Now I am 28 and am in relatively more and am in reality more illiterate than many schoolboys of 15. It is true that I have thought more and that my daydreams are more extended and magnificent, but they want, as the painters call it, keeping. And I greatly need a friend who would have sense enough not to despise me of romantic and affection enough for me to endeavor to regulate my mind. Well, these are useless complaints. I shall certainly find no friend on the wide ocean, nor even here an archangel among merchants and seamen. Yet some feelings unailed to the dross of human nature beat even in these rugged bosoms. My lieutenant, for instance, is a man of wonderful courage and enterprise. He is madly desirous of glory. He is an Englishman, and in the midst of national and professional prejudices, unsoftened by cultivation, retains some of the noblest endowments of humanity. I first became acquainted with him on board a whale vessel. Finding that he was unemployed in this city, I easily engaged him to assist in my enterprise. The master is a person of an excellent disposition and is remarkable in the ship for his gentleness and the mildness of his discipline. He is indeed of so amiable a nature that he will not haunt, not hunt a favorite and almost the only amusement here because he cannot endure to spill blood. He is, moreover, heroically generous. Some years ago, he loved a young Russian lady so of moderate fortune, and having amassed a considerable sum in prize money, the father of the girl consented to the match. He saw his mistress once before the destined ceremony, but she was bathed in tears and throwing herself at his feet entreating him to spare her, confessing at the same time that she loved another, but that he was poor and that her father would never consent to the union. My generous friend assured the suppliant, and on being informed of the name of her lover, instantly abandoned his pursuit. He had already bought a farm with his money, on which he had de designed to pass the remainder of his life, but he bestowed the whole on his rival, together with the remains of his prize money, to purchase stock, and then himself solicited the, the young woman's father to consent to her marriage with her lover. But the old man decidedly refused, thinking himself bound to honor to my friend, who, when he found the father inexorable, quitted his country, nor returned until he heard that his former mistress was married, according to her inclinations. What a noble fellow, you will exclaim. He is so, but then he has passed all his life on board a vessel and has scarcely an idea beyond the rope and the shroud. But do not suppose that because I complain a little or because I can conceive a, con a consolation for my toils, which I may never know, that I am wavering in my resolutions. Those are as fixed as fate, and my voyage is now only delayed until the weather shall permit my embarkation. The winter has been dreadfully severe, but the spring promises well, and it is considerable, considered as remarkably early season, so that perhaps I may sail sooner than expected. I shall do nothing rashly. You know me sufficiently to confide in my prudence and considerateness whenever the safety of others is committed to my care. 
I cannot describe to you my sensations on the near prospect of my undertaking. It is impossible to communicate to you a conception of the trembling sensation, half pleasurable and half fearful, with which I am preparing to depart. I am going to unexplored regions, to the land of mist and snow, but I shall kill no albatross, therefore do not be alarmed for my safety. Shall I meet you again after having traversed immense seas and returned by the most southern cape of Africa or America? I dare not expect such success, yet I cannot bear to look on the reverse of the picture. Continue to write to me by every opportunity. I may receive your letters, though the chance is very doubtful, on some occasions when I need them most to support my spirits. I love you very tenderly. Remember me with affection should you never hear from me again. Your affectionate brother, Robert Walton. Letter 3 to Miss Seville, England, July 7th, 1700s. My dear sister, I write a few lines in haste to say that I am safe and well advantaged on my voyage. This letter will reach England by a merchant man now on his homeward voyage from Archangel, more fortunate than I, who may not see my native land, perhaps for many years. I am, however, in good spirits. My men are bold and apparently firm of purpose, nor do the floating sheets of ice that continually pass us, indicating the dangers of the region towards which we are advancing, appear to dismay them. We have already reached a very high latitude, but it is the height of summer, and although not so warm as in England, the southern gales which blow us speedily towards those shores which I so ardently desire to attain breathe a degree of reno renovating warmth which I had not expected. No incidents had have here to befallen us that would make a figure in a letter. One or two stiff gales and the breaking of a mast are accidents which experienced navigators scarcely remember to record, and I shall be well content if nothing worse happens to us during our voyage. Adieu, my dear Margaret. Be assured that for my own sake, as well as yours, I will not rashly encounter danger. I will be cool, persevering, and prudent. Remember me to all my English friends. Most affectionately yours, R.W. Letter 4 to Miss Seville, England, August 5th, 1700. So strange an accident has happened to us that I cannot forbear recording it, although it is very probable that you will see me before these papers can come to, into your possession. Last Monday, July 31st, we were nearly surrounded by ice, which closed in on the ship on all sides, scarcely leaving her the sea room in which she floated. Our situation was somewhat dangerous, especially as we were compassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hoping that some change would take place in the atmosphere and weather. About two o'clock, the mist cleared away, and we beheld, stretched out in every direction, vast and irregular plains of ice, which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned, and my own mind began to grow watchful with anxious thoughts, when a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention, and diverted our solicitude from our own situation. We perceived a low carriage, fixed on a sledge, and sled, and drawn by dogs, pass on towards the north at the distance of half a mile. A being which had the shape of a man, but apparently a gigantic stature, sat on the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller and our telescopes with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. This appearance excited our unqualified wonder. We were, as we believed, many hundred miles from any land, but this apparition seemed to denote that it was not, in reality, so distant as we had supposed. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible to follow his track, 
which we had observed with the greatest attention. About two hours after this occurrence, we heard the ground sea, and before night the ice broke and freed our ship. We, however, lay to until the morning, fearing to encounter in the dark those loose masses which float about after the breaking up of the ice. I profited of this time to rest for a few hours. In the morning, however, as soon as it was light, I went upon deck and found all the sailors busy on one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge, like we had seen before, which had drifted towards us in the night on a large fragment of ice. Only one dog remained alive, but there was a human being within it, whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other travellers seemed to be, a savage inhabitant of some undiscovered island, but a European. When I appeared on deck, the master said, Here is our captain, and he will not allow you to perish in the open sea. On perceiving me, the stranger addressed me in English, although with a foreign accent. Before I come on board your vessel, said he, will you have the kindness to inform me whither you are bound? You may conceive my astonishment on hearing such a question addressed to me from a man on the brink of destruction, and to whom I should have supposed that my vessel would have been a resource which he would not have exchanged for the most precious wealth the earth can afford. I replied, however, that we were on a voyage of discovery towards the northern pole. Upon hearing this, he appeared satisfied and consented to come aboard. Good God! Margaret, if you had seen the man who thus capitulated for his safety, your surprise would have been boundless. His limbs were nearly frozen, and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. We attempted to carry him into the cabin, but as soon as he had quitted the fresh air, he fainted. We, accordingly, brought him back to the deck and restored him to animation by rubbing him with brandy and forcing him to swallow a small quantity. As soon as he shewed signs of life, we wrapped him up in blankets and placed him near the chimney of the kitchen stove. By slow degrees, he recovered and ate a little soup, which restored him wonderfully. Two days passed in this manner before he was able to speak, and I often feared that his sufferings had deprived him of understanding. When he had in some measure recovered, I removed him to my own cabin and attended on him as much as my duty would permit. I never saw a more interesting creature. His eyes have generally an expression of wildness, and even madness. But there are moments when, if any one performs an act of kindness towards him, or does him any of the most trifling service, his whole countenance is lighted up as if it were with a beam of benevolence and sweetness that I never saw equaled. But he is generally melancholy and despairing, and sometimes he gnashes his teeth as if impatient of the weight of woes that oppresses him. When my guest was a little more recovered, I had great trouble to keep off the men who wished to ask him a thousand questions, but I would not allow him to be tormented by their idle curiosity in a state of body and mind whose restoration evidently depended upon entire repose. Once, however, the lieutenant asked why he had come so far upon the ice in so strange a vehicle. His countenance instantly assumed an aspect of the deepest gloom, and he replied, to seek one who fled from me. And did the man who you pursued travel in the same fashion? Yes. Then I fancy we have seen him, for the day before we picked you up, we saw some dogs drawing a sledge with a man on it across the ice. This aroused the stranger's attention, and he asked a multitude of questions concerning the route which the daemon, as he called him, had pursued. Soon after, when he was alone with me, he said, 
I have doubtless excited your curiosity, as well as that of these good people, but you are too considerate to make inquiries. Certainly, it would indeed be very impertinent and inhumane of me to trouble you with any inquisitiveness of mine. And yet you rescued me from a strange and perilous situation. You have benevolently restored me to life. Soon after this, he inquired if I thought that the breaking up of the ice had destroyed the other sledge. I replied that I could not answer with any degree of certainty, for the ice had not broken until near midnight, and the traveler might have arrived at a place of safety before that time. But of this I could not judge. From this time, the stranger seemed very eager to be upon deck, to watch for the sledge which had before appeared. But I have persuaded him to remain in the cabin, for he is far too weak to sustain the rawness of the atmosphere. But I have promised that someone should watch for him, and give him instant notice of any new object should appear in, night, in sight. Such is my journal of what relates to this strange occurrence upon the present day. The stranger has gradually improved in health, but it is very silent and appears, but is very silent, and appears uneasy, uneasy when anyone except myself enters his cabin. Yet his manners are so calculating and gentle that the sail conciliating and gentle that the sailors are all interested in him, although they have had very little communication with him. For my own part, I begin to love him as a brother, and his constant and deep grief fills me with sympathy and compassion. He must have been a noble creature in his better days, being even now in wreck so attractive and amiable. I said in one of my letters, my dear Margaret, that I should find no friend in the wide ocean, yet I have found a man who, before his spirit had been broken by misery, I should have been happy to have possessed as a brother of my heart. I shall continue my journal concerning the stranger at intervals, should I have any fresh incidents to record. August 13th, 1700. My affection for my guest increases every day. He excites at once my admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a creature destroyed by misery without feeling the most poignant grief? He is so gentle, yet so wise. His mind is so cultivated. And when he speaks, although his words are called with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. He is now much recovered from his illness and is continually on the deck, apparently watching for the sledge that have preceded his own. Yet although unhappy, he is not so utterly occupied by his own misery, but that he interests himself deeply in the employments of others. He has asked me many questions concerning my design, and I have related my little history frankly to him. He appeared pleased with the confidence and suggested several alterations in my plan, which I shall find exceedingly useful." There is no pedantry in his manner, but all he does appears to spring solely from the interest he instinctively takes in the welfare of those who surround him. He is often overcome by gloom, and then he sits by himself and tries to overcome all that is sullen or unsocial in his humor. These paroxysms pass from him like a cloud from beyond the sun, though his dejection never leaves him. I have endeavored to win his confidence, and I trust that I have succeeded. One day I mentioned to him the desire I had always felt of finding a friend who might sympathize with me and direct me by his counsel. I said I did not belong to that class of men who were offended by advice. I am self-educated, and perhaps I hardly rely sufficiently upon my own powers. I wish, therefore, that my companion should be wiser and more experienced than myself to confirm and support me, nor have I believed it impossible to find a true friend." I agree with you, replied the stranger, in believing that friendship is not only a desirable but a possible acquisition. I once had a friend, 
the most noble of human creatures, and am entitled, therefore, to judge respecting friendship. You have hope and the world before you, and have no cause for despair, but I, I have lost everything and cannot begin life anew. As he said this, his countenance became expressive of a calm, settled grief that touched me to the heart. But he was silent and presently retired to his cabin. Even broken in spirit as he is, no one can feel more deeply than he does the beauties of nature. The starry sky, the sea, and every sight afforded by these wonderful regions seems still to have the power of elevating his soul from earth. Such a man has a double existence. He may suffer misery and be overwhelmed by the disappointments, yet when he has retired unto himself, he will be like a celestial spirit that has a halo around him, within whose circle no grief or folly ventures. Will you laugh at the enthusiasm I express concerning this divine wanderer? If you do, you must certainly have lost that simplicity which was once your characteristic charm. Yet, if you will, smile at the warmth of my expressions while I find every day new cause for repeating them. August 19th, 1700. Yesterday, the stranger said to me, You may easily perceive, Captain Walton, that I have suffered great and unparalleled misfortune. I have determined once that the memory of these evils should die with me, but you have won me to alter my determination. You seek for knowledge and wisdom, as I once did, and I ardently hope that the gratification of your wishes may not be a serpent to sting you, as mine has been. I do not know that the relation of my misfortunes will be useful to you, yet if you are inclined, listen to my tale. I believe that the strange incidents connected with it afford a view of nature, which may enlarge your faculties and understanding. You will hear of powers and occurrences such as you have been accustomed to believe impossible, but I do not doubt that my tale conveys in its series internal evidence of the truth of the events of which it is composed." You may easily conceive that I was much gratified by the offer communication, offered communication, yet I could not endure that he should renew his grief by a recital of his misfortunes. I felt the greatest eagerness to hear the promised narrative, partly from curiosity and partly from a strong desire to ameliorate his fate, if it were in my power. I expressed these feelings in my answer. I thank you, he replied, for your sympathy, but it is useless. My fate is nearly fulfilled. I wait but for one event, and then I shall repose in peace. I understand your feeling, continued he, perceiving that I wished to interrupt him. But you are mistaken, my friend. If thus you will allow me to name you, nothing can alter my destiny. Listen to my history, and you will perceive how irrevocably it is determined. He then told me that he would commence his narrative the next day when I should be at leisure. This promise drew from me the warmest thanks. I have resolved every night when I am not engaged to record as nearly as possible in my own words what he has related during the day. If I should be engaged, I will at least make notes. This manuscript will doubtless afford you the greatest pleasure, but to me, who know him and who hear it from his own lips, with what interest and sympathy shall I read it in some future day? Okay. So that's it for day one. Uh, it is uh, the four letters and the preface basically for Frankenstein. Uh, and we can see that the story is now going to be conveyed by the stranger and uh, uh, R.W. is going to write about it. So it's it's pretty great. I mean, we all know 
the story of Frankenstein and um, you can you you know we haven't even been introduced we don't know his name yet but we know that the stranger that that um, RW's encountered as he's uh, on his journey to the unknown and to and on his sailing journey is is the famous Frankenstein so um, and that they obviously saw the creature as he as he fled away and I mean maybe I'm wrong but I'm pretty sure that that's that's what we're setting up and it's really interesting I think the coolest thing about this is reading it knowing the story and how the story is so ingrained in popular culture but at the time it being a brand new as as Mary Shelley was talking just inspired by these ghost stories and its own creation and its own understanding of um of how to tell sort of a, a scary and, and relevant story so people wouldn't necessarily have that same uh, connection to it at, when they first read it and I just think there's something really interesting about coming at something in pop culture or something that's in in a in a in a novel that you're so f- intimately familiar with and yet d- don't know anything about. And I don't know if other people are, are there with me, if, you, if you've if you never read Frankenstein before, uh, that it, it just adds this really interesting element to the novel and, and I'm really enjoying it. The language, I will, I will say, is intense and so I really appreciate you bearing with me. I apologize if some of the words have not come across as articulate as they could have. Um, it's... it's early 1800s it's very different language from what we're uh, used to but it's such beautiful prose so I will I will say it's it's a real pleasure and I'm really pleased that this is something that I've chosen to undertake in the next little while to keep myself occupied and I hope you will enjoy listening with me or at least be inspired if you listen no more to uh, perhaps endeavor to read Mary Shelley's prose and poetic prose if you will uh, yourself. So uh, thank you for listening to this special edition of the Thunder Quack podcast. And if you want to tell me what you think, I'd love, I would love to know what people are thinking of the book. And so feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can contact me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Aconkin, A-K-O-N-K-I-N. And you can add an 86 to that for Instagram. Uh, you can also email the Thunder Quack podcast, which I think is info at thunderquack mail at thunderquack.com you know i'll i'll figure out what the actual email address is by the next time that i do one of these outros um but yeah please please let me know i'd love to i'd love to hear uh, what it is that other people think if this is your first time listening or if uh you've read the uh book before and if you have any con- uh, commentary or, or or criticisms or things about um what you're hearing that would be yeah just let me know i'd love to i'd love to hear from you so uh thanks for listening and I will talk to you next time.